Welcome everybody. My name is Jack. He him pronouns. I'm I'm PJ. Also he he him pr pronouns. And we have with us Carolina and Louie, who are going to introduce themselves in a second. And we're going to be talking about liberalism, progressivism, and the Democratic Party, with some Supreme Court in the mix. So, you guys want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Louie. Um, I'm the president of GW College Democrats. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a junior double majoring in political science and political communication with a minor in history. Yeah. Um, and hi, my name is Carolina Fujiviera. Um, my pronouns are she, her, hers, um, and I'm currently the executive vice president for Dems. How would you describe your own political philosophy? Can you go first, Carolina? No, I think Louie has a much more clear-cut vision, so let's leave the confusion for after. Louie can go first. Okay, thank you. Well, I would say that my political philosophy is, I guess if it had to be one word, it would be egalitarianism, and living up to that. Um, I believe that it is the duty of government to create an equal playing field for all Americans, regardless of where you're born, where you grow up. You should have access to the same opportunities and the government should be able to provide those opportunities and work to ensure that you have everything at your disposal in order to achieve the American dream. Um, for me, it's very clear that the American dream is very elusive to millions of Americans. It's out of touch. And when you hear politicians talk about it on TV, it's really not a tangible prospect for them. And I feel like we need to have major reforms in this country in order to make the American dream available for everybody. Um, and I think that all of us in the Democratic Party agree on that very basic premise. It's just a matter of how we get there. Um, I know we're gonna be talking about this a little bit later on. Um, my personal philosophy is that I'm for stuff that works. I'm not a labels guy. I don't subscribe to one term or the other. If, if I see a policy and it makes sense and it will tangibly benefit people's lives without the, without the cons outweighing the pros, then I'm for it. That's how I process things normally. And I think that this will be a good discussion that we have. Yes. See, Louis had a much more clear-cut vision of what his morals are, and that's probably mainly because he's incredibly more politically inclined than I am. And I say that because Louis is actually a political science major and polycom major, and I have left, I've departed that sphere. Um, but I agree with everything Louis said. I think that that's a really good basis. Um, I think that, if anything, Louis and I disagree in how we achieve those things. Um, I think that, you know, having lived in Europe and, you know, being a minority, being an immigrant, being a woman, being disabled, um, and so many different aspects of my life have influenced me to have potentially could be labeled as more, more progressive views than the, than the current Democratic Party has. Um, whether you want to label that as democratic socialism, you know, whatever you want to label it as. Um, but I agree with Louie. I think that for me, it's very policy-based. Um, I think that 
you know, there's a lot of really good landmark pieces that I'm sure we'll end up talking about later that I really agree with. Um, I do have a difficult time associating myself with like one part of the party or the other, um, just because, which I'm sure we'll get into why. Um, but yeah, I think that sums it up a little bit. Word. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I feel like the reason I asked the two of you on, I'll just like say it explicitly is because like, I feel the two of you represent like these two like nodes, factions, whatever you want to call them within the Democratic Party as like it shows up right now. And it's pretty cool that you guys are the president and executive vice president of the Dems. Like, I think that's pretty like symbolic. So how would you guys like describe that? Just, yeah, in your own words, like what do you think? Um, I'm gonna go first because I let Louis talk last time and I love talking about this divide. Um, I have said this before, um, the center of the party is very close if not a GOP light. And I say this considering the fact that, you know, establishment Dems, pretty much the only thing that really separates them from like potentially centrist Republicans, if you want to call that, is just like the fact that they're like very clear about things like we're, you know, pro-choice, you know, we're for immigration, all these specific labels. However, when you really start diving into whatever maybe their records you know whether it be their voting records you know their bills they've supported um their personal records in terms of you know um money and you know investments and stuff like that there's there it's a very gray area um you know so i think that there's a lot of those people that are still in the pockets of like big pharma you know big corporations because they're still getting millions of dollars for their campaigns every year from them However, they have this facade of being like pro people. Um, so there's most certainly that I would say is probably the current position and leadership. Um, you know what I mean? In terms of Dems, um, especially in elected power, I feel like Nancy Pelosi is there, if not pretty damn close to it. Um, I know that Senator Feinstein is definitely there. Um, there's a lot of different examples across the whole spectrum. Um, but then there's kind of like an in-between, I think what I want to say, there's like an in-between part from like that super centrist area that like is just more talk than actual action. And then going from there, and then you go to the extreme, which is like Bernie, Ed Markey, Ilhan, AOC. You know, I feel like there's an area in between, which however you want to label it as, um, you know, I feel like that area definitely exists and it's definitely like a spectrum, which as Louis loves to say, it's a big tent party, right? So there's definitely people scattered in between. And I think that's a good thing because it adds a lot more diversity to the tickets and, you know, people can find politicians that they really agree with on a lot of things. Um, but we tend to just, especially the media tends to isolate these like two extremes, like the establishment Dems, and, you know, the Dem Socialists, want, that's what you want to call them, um, and how they're always at, at, like, at odds with each other, and they're always fighting. Um, however, there's a lot more people in between as well. I wanted to ask you more about that label, like, Democratic Socialist, mm -hmm. because some of them, like, Bernie, I see, like, very, very openly, like, where, with, like, Pride, yeah. AOC, too, like, very much, we are Democratic Socialists, you know, on the DSA, and other, like, mm -hmm. like, that, but would you call, like, would you call like 
I don't know, a democratic socialist wing of the democratic party, or is it just like progressive? I'm really asking about the terms progressive and democratic yeah. socialism. Do you think they've become synonymous? Um, I think that a lot of people want to assume that they've become synonymous. However, I still think that there is a difference between, you know, some people that are deemed progressive versus the people that are like democratic socialists, right? Because there's people like, I mean, just bring up like uh, Joe Kennedy. You know, he's for Medicare for all, which is deemed progressive. However, you kind of dive into his personal life, his voting record, not so progressive. So it's like there's definitely a divide, I would say, especially I would say the divide that I've at least noticed in between Bernie and Warren almost, like the difference between those two groups of supporters. Um, I would say that Bernie supporters have kind of faded away from like this idea of being labeled as a progressive and Warren people have really hung on to it and clung on to it. Um, but Bernie supporters have kind of moved on to it, as you said, democratic socialist, leftist, whatever you really want to call it. Um, so there's definitely a divide there as well. In the run up to my appearance on this fantastic podcast, I read a Washington Post article from 2019 about the divides between liberalism and uh, leftism or progressivism, depending on how you would call it. And one of the things that was very um, interesting to me was the divide between, or really, I think what we lose sight of is that there's philosophical liberalism and leftism, and then, it is, and then what it is in practice. And philosophically speaking, we could dig into that and we could talk about what the purpose of government is, like that comes with um, like the role for the government uh, in the free market. Um, do you want like a regulatory capitalistic state or do you want a complete and total socialist state? Those are more philosophical elements, but when it comes to governing, it's and the contemporary problems we're seeing in the Democratic Party, it's really a discussion about issues. So one of which is Medicare for all versus a public option. So I think that Medicare for all personally is a fantastic end goal, but I also realize that it can't be done overnight and there has to be uh, processes to get us there. And then there's also a substantial uh, portion of the country um, who have private insurance and they prefer it. Uh, my family is one of them. We would give up our health insurance to go on a government plan. But I know that for some other people, they prefer one thing or another. And just by the selfish nature of some voters, they may not want to transition over to uh, that plan. So a public option would incentivize using the market to get more and more people to buy into the public option, which is the government plan. And then since the insurance companies won't really be able to keep up, then you're sliding into Medicare for all. And then you have Medicare for all. So I think that everybody in the Democratic Party thinks that um, everybody should have health care. Um, to Carolina's point, though, when you're talking about people bought by the pharmaceutical industry and some votes that they have, like when it comes to regulating drug prices, that is the stench that we need to filter out. I totally agree. I don't necessarily view this as a centrist, liberal, leftist issue. This is people taking big money uh, from big money and interests, and those need to be extinguished from our politics and you do that by repealing Citizens United via a constitutional amendment and move to public financing of elections. So I think that that's ultimately the end goal. But issue by issue, 
there's a lot of discussion to be made. You can't just snap your fingers and expect things to happen. And I think that that's what we're seeing a lot in the party of people who want to go uh, gung-ho on the Green New Deal or Medicare for All versus other Democrats who are like, you know what, stop there. Let's do some of these things, but we can't go too fast on this issue because it's just not practical, even if they want to. And I think that that's more of a discussion that we're seeing. So, okay, so kind of like going off of that, you know, different parts of, of, of the party, different factions have kind of like laid claim to these di different issues. Like pro progressives have laid claim to Medicare for, for all and a, a green, green New Deal. And <clears throat> if you don't back, back those, you're considered an establishment, an establishment politician. Why do you feel that certain terms have been have now received a ne negative connotation, others have a po positive one, and how these issues align. Whoever wants to start. Yeah, I can take that. I guess we're alternating. I think that the term establishment is toxic because Washington, just Washington politicians have failed Americans time and time again, regardless of party. And people are sick of that, and people want change. Um, when it comes to how we're marketing things and bumper sticker slogans, I don't think that you can legislate via bumper sticker. You can't just say uh, Medicare for all, but then when you're pressed on these specifics or how you're going to pay for it, you either can't offer substantive, um, a substantive stance on that, um, or on the flip side, you have a lot of uh, politicians who don't want to agree to some of these things because they're afraid that it's going to scare voters away because the voters themselves, they don't know the details of policy. And this is going back to the point I was making that um, I read about in the Washington Post article, which I referred to. The media has done all of us a very, very terrible disservice by boiling down politics to these easy bite-sized bits for all of us to understand. Um, when they're saying that somebody like Cori Bush, for example, who just won a primary against a liberal Democrat in Missouri, she, she's a leftist, um, Lacey Clay is a liberal to moderate. You'd say like he's just more of a old-timing Democrat. The media should not say that this was a liberal who, a more liberal person that's doing them a disservice. There's a clear difference here between leftism and liberalism, it's the divide that we're laying out here. And for people not to really understand the complexity of these issues, I mean, if the media thinks the American people are stupid and they can't process this information, then I think the media needs to get out of their ivory tower and actually talk to people because people just wanna hear solutions that benefit people, they affect people and will They'll affect people and they'll benefit them in their day-to-day -day lives. And that's not what we have right now. And I think the media has an important role to be very straightforward with the American people and to tell them what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree with Bluey. I think that a lot of it has been media portrayal. Um, at the end of the day, you can't turn away from the fact that, um, you know, big broadcast networks, you know, big newspapers are corporations. So they're going to put out what sells. So if they're going to say that Nancy Pelosi is back in a fight again with 
leftist AOC, Democratic Socialist AOC, and if that's what's going to sell, that's what they're, that's what they're going to put out. These are corporations, and they're trying to get the clicks, they're trying to get the views, they're trying to get the money. Um, so there's no question that you know media spin has an incredible impact on public perception of things. Um, I would also say that you know it's I would just to like give an example I think that Pelosi's you know continued you know in the, even like how Feinstein you know like she she had a room full of kids come into her room and try to lobby her for Green New Deal and she like said like a bunch of like really insensitive stuff she's like how do you guys know like you're not adults or whatever it was like you know what I mean like and stuff like that's put out into the universe people are going to start thinking that like you know they've been seeing Senator Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi doing politics for years so like they're trusted names in politics like you know why can't we trust these women so when they call these kids like out of their minds and like this policy will never pass and all this stuff like it does them no favors um you know there is it that only encourages a toxic environment that only encourages you know backlash and that only adds fire to the media to actually portray them as this inter-party fight that's always occurring um so there's no question that you know that is also playing into the game it's not just media as well there's definitely some element to that um but it's a you know this whole like labeling issue i think as well like louis said you know it's really how we kind of cut everything up into bite-sized pieces like you said in order for the public to digest um so i think that also yeah that plays a big part as well should we then like i don't know like nationalized media should we like should we like have a government corporation that's competing with national media should we like sponsor some sort of like broadband youtube that everyone can upload like their cell phone videos and the big conglomerate conglomeration of that is the news so like what i'm asking is if if we all see that like the media is a problem and it's like fomenting these like arguments what should we do about it very good question um there was a piece i was reading about in um the voice of america which is one of these government-funded news sources which we're talking about in the trump administration and the program um, in certain countries in former um, Soviet bloc nations that had Voice of America there, it's, um, it, it's subsidized by the U.S. government to deliver real news to people out there who are receiving propaganda from their own governments. Now, I think that nationalizing um, a, news, um, a news network, news station, paper, what have you. We already have uh, PBS, which is funded by uh, daily listeners like you. I think that that's what they say. Uh, and I don't think that we need to create any new institution, per se. And I think that that's a slippery slope in and of itself. I mean, imagine Donald Trump having his own media company that has a direct line to the White House. It's like Fox News, but worse, really. So I'd be very scared about where that could take us and i think that we have a free press in this country and they should be able to operate accordingly however i think it's upon citizens and nonpartisan groups to hold them accountable and make sure that they're sticking to the issues 
And it's incumbent upon all of us not to fall for clickbait stories and get in and read too much into things that are really nonsensical and give them their clicks, make them talk about issues, make them talk about substantive things. And I think that part of that comes with media literacy and just literacy education in schools and how to be an informed news observer. When I was going through high school, um, great education all around, but there was no specific class dedicated to that. And I really think in order to have an informed citizenry, you need something more than just AP Gov. You need, you need to learn how to parse facts from lies, especially in this world that we live in. And I think that our education system needs to adapt. So that would be the solution that I would propose. So you would revamp education and encourage people to like hold their political leaders accountable in order to make media less, um, not less focused with like breaking news and headlines and fights. It's also, I think that us as we have a lot of collective power, belief in unions, and I think it could also be applied um, to the quote unquote free market as well. If people want to see change, if Fox News saw their their viewers drop like this, because people are getting change in the network, then change will happen because it's all for profit. Um, we do live in an age now though, where we're operating in different uh, realities. And I think that a lot of that is also coming upon social media companies like Facebook and Twitter to call a spade a spade and say that if a politician is lying to you or a media company is giving you misleading information, to flag it and to let people know it's their responsibility to do that. Um, but I think that if we start to get into the, we need to ban this news source entirely. I think that that opens up a Pandora's box we don't want to uh, hop into. Carolina, you want to you wanna um, add, add on, on to that? Yeah, um, I won't say too much just because I'd rather talk about other things. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, all is good and well for us to have this long-term goal of reforming education and implementing all of these different programs to actually educate the public in terms of media consumption. Um, but that's only going to go so far. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I have kids that like took AP Gov with me and like they, they're so Republicans that watch Fox News every day and drink it like it's milk. And, you know, like, just everything that comes out of their mouth is a Fox News line. Um, so there's only so so far that can go. I think that it's also extremely impacted on the environment you grow up. If your parents grow up watching Fox News, you're going to go to college and the source that you're going to go to for information is Fox News. If you grow up in a house where you watch CNN, you're going to go to CNN. If you grow up in MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, with that being said, um, I do agree that like also we shouldn't ban it. You know what I mean? Like I think that obviously free press is extremely important. Um, in terms of actually starting a, you know, government funded, I think that, you know, things that Louis were saying is obviously of concern, um, but also how effective is it gonna be? How many people are actually gonna be watching? Um, you know, is this an investment that's worthwhile? You know, somebody gonna rather watch somebody, you know, 
give unbiased information or watch like Governor Cuomo like pretty much shit talk the Republican Party for 30 minutes. So like it really just depends, you know what I mean? I think that it's it's an idea. I just like I'm not quite sure how effective it would be and I think that like from a business mi- mindset to you know bring my business degree into this um you have to have a return on investment so if you're gonna be making the money if you're gonna be putting the money into this program you have to see a change in you know public behavior in terms of media consumption um so yeah it's definitely a multifaceted issue that you know there's lots of time about i would say that independence needs to be enshrined in any of these institutions and there are some publications like there's one on the capitol that does a uh, weekly rundown. I think it's roll call. I don't know if it's directly subsidized by the US government, um, but there are publications that already kind of have this idea in place, be it a, a news network or a newspaper, and just ensuring that their independence is enshrined entirely, like the Pentagon uh, newspaper, which Trump wanted to defund, but then went back on it. I don't know if it was him or, or uh, the administration. That needs to continue. And it needs to be completely independent. So the DOD can't write uh, articles and peddle the administration's agenda. So independence is, I think, an American value when it comes to the free press. And we need to continue that going forward. Yeah, uh, I, I think that we can all agree that like neither solution is perfect. There's, you know, what we have now is just the price of free freedom. Um, while on, on the other on the other and we do see what happens when you know a, a state-run media can you know kind of just rule everything so no perfect answer to it um, but on the topic of freedom of the press we're going to try to make the transition to um, the the courts and the un- unfortunate death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and we're gonna we want to talk about what does her death mean for the court and for the country? What do you guys feel should happen next? And um, how does this change the Democratic Party's um, strategy going into the election? So I guess starting off with like, how, how does her, her death now impact both policy and the politics of the, of the, the, the situation? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I will say, especially with um, the question of filling the court, um, you know, a lot of people are tweeting, like, you see why Lincoln, the Lincoln Project is silent on this, like, they're not your friends, like, people are saying that, you know what I mean, and, like, that's a valid concern, but I think that it proves a greater point and a flaw that the establishment and the DNC is overlooking completely, um, the fact of the matter is that right now they are just trying to get people to vote for Joe Biden, they aren't trying to get people to become Democrats. Um, and long-term, that's a horrible strategy. It's gonna do them no favors whatsoever. Um, it is just, while yes, I completely agree, Donald Trump needs to leave. He's like literally a dictator, borderline. Um, he's god awful. Um, this strategy, if the Biden administration doesn't do all the things that it's promising it's gonna do, is literally gonna screw over the Democratic Party. Like if within those four years, Biden doesn't do everything that he said he was gonna do, you know, those people that voted for Biden are just gonna go straight back to the Republican Party, no questions asked. You know what I mean? Like they're voting for Joe Biden as the only Democrat on their ticket, the rest of their ticket's Republican. So 
in terms of long-term investment, this strategy is not very effective. And I feel like that's definitely come to light, at least for me in this period. Um, however, on another note, I think that for me, you know, after hearing of her passing, I think that I didn't really mourn. For me, it was just like low-key panic. Um, like I literally texted in her group chat, like I might literally have to fly to Canada to get reproductive health care. Like that's a legitimate concern. Um, considering Trump was literally saying that if he gets reelected, he's going to repeal Roe v. Wade or, you know, whatever you want to say, whatever terminology you want to use. Um, and then now he like pretty much doesn't have to wait. Like he can just fill the court seat and they can do something about it, which is terrifying. Um, I think that that's definitely one thing in terms of protections for Im immigrants, you know, LGBTQ plus protections in the country, you know, um, workers' rights, so many different issues. I think that there is an incredible amount on the line. Um, and I feel like in some ways it's kind of woken some people up. You know, those people that are like, I hate Biden. I don't want to vote for Biden, which like I get, but also I think that we can tell that this is like literally like it's not just for to quote Biden, democracy is on the line. Um, now, like literally people's rights are on the line and that's like a legitimate concern. Um, so I think that that definitely causes some panic and stress in myself. I mean, especially you see the Republican response um, very quickly with like no empathy whatsoever for the situation. Um, that also definitely adds some to the stress as well. I would say that I, I think a lot of people were skeptical about the LinkedIn project about they were silent for a good 24 hours after the death, but they did release a statement saying that there should be no justice confirmed until um, the next president is sworn in. They released it pretty much 24 hours after the news was announced and they said it was because they were paying their respects to her and her life. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that. You can criticize some of the other things they're doing. I'm not their biggest fan. Um, I'd say on the Biden issue, to me, it's really a choice, a binary choice between democracy and authoritarianism or fascism. And I, again, like I said at the top, I don't like using labels that often, but that's really what it is. That's what this boils down to. When it comes to the courts, um, if you haven't looked at, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and her background because you know she's not a household name yet. Please do that. This is somebody who took a pledge. Um, say basically it was a pledge of loyalty to this group. And the group believes that the father should be out working and the woman should be in charge of her family. So, I mean, the 1950s called and they want their lifestyle back. That's basically what she represents and that's what she'd be on the court. This is also somebody who said that um, life begins at conception and would be almost a certain vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. So that's what you want governing the country for the next 30, 40 years. I mean, we're talking about some people like, um, what's this say, Stephen Breyer, he's no spring chicken. Um, Amy Coney Barrett is, she is in her 50s, I think. And she'll be on the court for 
for a while and her right-wing philosophy of governance will be on the court for a while. So when Carolina said that this election really is about preserving the rights and the gains that we've made really over the last 60, 70 years, it's absolutely right. You may not agree with Joe Biden on everything. I think that Joe Biden has committed to have the most progressive agenda out of really, I think, in American history. And it's up to everybody who's listening to this to hold him to that and make sure that he follows through. I also acknowledge, though, that if we do not have a Democratic Senate or if we somehow lose the Demo uh, our majority in the House and he winds up as president, it's going to be very hard to get his agenda through. All the Republicans care about is blocking him at every turn, just like they did with Obama. And it's not going to be easy, but I know he's going to fight and he's going to fight for what's right because we really have no more time to waste on this front. But if we allow the Republicans to get another justice on the Supreme Court, forget about 2020, forget about 2024, forget about 2028, any major uh, policy initiative that progressives are championing will be blocked. You think that they're going to let Medicare for all through? They're trying to get rid of Obamacare and 23 million people are going to lose their health insurance before the end of the year. They're going to be taking up that case soon. So if you think that Obamacare is too radical for them, but they're going to somehow just embrace Medicare for all, then, you know, wake up now. That's not, that's not what's going to happen. They're going to say it's unconstitutional. The Green New Deal, unconstitutional. Any major federal program, they're going to say is unconstitutional. That's the philosophy. They interpret things as they were written in 1789, and they wouldn't mind if we go back to that time period in many cases. So know that when you vote, it's a binary choice between moving forward, may not be at the pace you want to move forward, but we're moving forward, or we're going to be getting on a bullet train that this country doesn't have developed as we haven't invested enough in transportation, and we're going to be going way back to the 20th century, maybe the 19th century in some aspects. So remember that when you vote, and that's really what's on the line here. I want to say, though, like, that's the beauty of court packing and impeachment is that we can throw these suckers out. Like, every conservative judge that Trump put on the court, if we organize and, like, just, like, actually there's a good majority, you can just throw all these people out. You can court pack the entire court. The whole system is illegitimate and built on stolen land. So, like, who gives a crap about all these, like, traditions? Like, let's pack the court. Let's impeach the judges. Let's completely like change this because like there's no reason to like not play to win. It's that not is... about like traditions or like holding institutions because like as we've seen, the institutions will turn around and like whack us in the face if we don't get rid of them first, especially the way they're set up. And so yeah, I, I, I feel like we we just need to I'm I'm so scared of that reality yeah. too, Louis. That yeah. scares the crap out of me. So let's completely make sure it could never happen. Scares all of us. Here's the thing: when FDR tried to get court packing through in the 1930s, he couldn't get it done, and I think that that says something. And there are inherent checks and balances built into the system, which would not allow something like this to occur. And we can't talk about oh, we're going to abolish the Senate, we're going to abolish the Supreme Court. I don't think that. As nice as it may sound, reinventing the entire thing, that's not practical in this day and age. And we're not, and nothing will allow that to be done, I could assure you. So the goal here is to get Biden in office. And I'm open to the idea of court packing. Don't get me wrong. 
and I think that we need to reform the entire way the Supreme Court operates, there is in the Constitution no number of justices which is enumerated. And I think that, that there's many different plans. There's many different um, scholarly articles that have been written, written about it, about ways that we could reform the court and depoliticize it. I think that courts have a very important place in this country in interpreting the law and making sure that it's um, applied equally and equitably. But the current structure of the Supreme Court and then federal appellate courts is not what a healthy democracy really should look like. And we need to change that. Um, I think that if you were to get rid of the Senate and get rid of the Supreme Court, then we also we're going to have to rewrite the entire Constitution, and that's going to throw the country into complete chaos. Because if you're right, but if you're worried about these advancements that we've made in the last, uh, I mean, really since I'd say the 1860s, quite frankly, if you're worried about that, I think that having a constitutional convention to throw everything out the window and really creating a new form of government. It's not just going to be you and five people who think the same way as you do. It's also going to be the neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville who will have equal footing in creation of that document. And the Constitution also holds them in check as much as it holds lefties in check. So I think that there's something to be said about our institutions, but they also need to be reformed greatly. And we need to reimagine what the prior limits were. I just want to say one thing based off what Jack said. So Forget everything Louis just said. Remember what Jack just said. <laughs> um, I think that I think that was Joe Marcus that actually tweeted this um, right after RBG's passing, and you know when the tweets started coming in from Mitch McConnell and the president and everything like that, um, that he was like, "We have to stop playing like with the rules because the Republicans throw them out every time." So it doesn't. I at this point like I'm tired of being the only ones that follow the rules and then we're the ones that get screwed over every time so at this point it's just like when we have the power we have to use that power and you know we have to protect our people and we have to protect the people and in those moments that we do find ourselves in these positions we have to use that power and we have to stop just like you know sitting back and watching all this just kind of go through which isn't just it's not okay you know what i mean um so if Republicans are going to keep saying stuff and just like completely pretend they, like they never said that, which has happened like multiple times in this specific uh, administration, like I'm pretty sure like Lindsey Graham has said like five different things. Like is, I think it was like during Kavanaugh, like he had said something and like this old clip of him had come back into circulation and then people were like trying to hold him accountable about it, but he like obviously does not care. Um, so it was just like, if they're not going to play by the rules, like why are we playing by the rules at this point? Like it's just, it's not it's just not okay so. okay uh so with regards to like packing the core like that's one one thing so what happens when tw when a 2016 style situation rolls around and republicans have the white house and the senate and they want and they want to to court pack and then it's 19 justices and then it's 12 Republicans and seven de democrats all it's going to do is just be this back and forth back and forth to where you have like what so i guess my my question is is that a sit, sit, sit situation that everyone is okay with or is that like like where do you stand on that oh 
Yeah, great question, PJ. So I think that there is something to be said about reaping what you sow. And I mean, the Republicans made this point, but I'll say it because I think it illustrates the point you're making that when Harry Reid blew up some of the existing rules and he moved confirmation from 60 down to 50, uh, 50 plus one, um, that's also part of the reason why we're in this situation in the first place. So there's certain things that we may do that we would later regret. Now, do I think that adding two seats to the court potentially get it up to 11? And I think that that is fair considering that the Republicans have basically stole two seats being uh, Kavanaugh and this one, I wouldn't necessarily throw Gorsuch into the same bucket because it was, a, it was like an eye for an eye. No way it was conservative or conservative. Um, with that said, I think that we need to be careful about this going forward because as much as you may want to talk about the revolution and burning the entire system to the ground, that's not going to happen in reality. And I think that these decisions that we're making, um, we could pay for them very much so down the line. So let's talk about ways to depoliticize the court. I think that's better for Democrats. I think that's better for Republicans. It's better for independents. It's better for all of us, really. And that's the direction that we should be heading in. Anyone wants to add on onto, onto that? I was going to add something on about like the group of people that actually want to burn the whole thing to the ground. But that's like a whole other episode of me just talking about this. Like, this is like literally a whole other episode that like I'm going to hopefully do with you guys because I have so much to say on this specific topic. But that's whole thing. For another time. Yeah, we've been going for 35, 40 minutes. Um, Is there, like, so, yeah. Is there any last, like, where do you think this is going? How do you think this is going to resolve? Do you think it's going to resolve? Where? What do you think will be, like, the future of this, like, Democratic Party, I don't know, after November, after 2024, where do you think this is going if we're talking about burning it all down? So I think we're in the position right now, we're 43 days out from the most consequential election in, people say that every time, but it's actually true this time in American history, everything's on the line. And a lot of what happens here and in the months that follow, November 3rd, is probably going to leave a lasting mark on this country for generations to come. Um, it's clear that if Donald Trump loses the election, he will not accept that result. And we have never seen an incumbent president reject the results of a free and fair election like what he's about to do, um, assuming that Biden wins, knock on wood here. Um, but I think that that's going to greatly challenge our existing institutions and they're gonna stretch them even more than they've been stretched to this point. And we'll see what comes of that. And when there is a Biden administration, again, knock on wood, we need to discuss ways to advance these policies that we're talking about and making sure that our lives are better than the lives of our parents is right now it's actually reverse. And we're the first generation in a long, long time to be facing that reality. And there's a lot that needs to be done. But if Trump wins re-election, or, or if Trump tries to implement martial law after the election, I would not put that out of um, the question, considering that Bill Barr is talking about sedition. That's a, that, that term is a real blast from the past. Um, 
I think we're in trouble. So let's get through this and then let's finish that discussion. Caroline, you want the last word? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with Louie. I mean, another four years of Trump is going to continue to make insane amounts of damage in this country. Um, I've said this before, um, but we will spend the rest of our lives reversing what this administration has done to this country. Um, that's just like, it, it's done that much damage. Um, no doubt about it. We will spend the rest of our lives working on this. Um, yeah, I mean, another four years of Trump is, I pray to God that it just like doesn't happen. Um, but it's, you know, unfortunately it's a reality that could potentially occur. Um, but I think that, you know, in hopefully a Biden administration, because that's the other option, because it's a three-party system, um, <laughs> you know, we, we can hope and we can dream that Biden will prove to be the most progressive president ever. Woohoo! And we can hope that and we can dream that. And I, you know what? I hope that he does. I hope that he pushes for Medicare for all. I hope that he pushes for the Green New Deal. I hope all of these things. Um, but at the end of the day, considering everything, there's only so, so much optimism. Uh, I can only be so optimistic. Um, uh, so, I mean, yeah, it is an extremely consequential election. I completely agree with Louis. I think that it's, I hope that there is no election like this in the rest of our lives and our children's lives and forever and ever and ever. Um, I hope that nobody else has to go ever, ha ever has to go through something like this. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. Thank you, Jack and PJ. Yeah, thank you too. Thank you guys for coming on. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Um, I hope you have a good day, and I hope you stay safe. And I hope we all survive the apocalypse or the revolution, whichever happens first. Mm -hmm.